This morning I want to read to you um, the, the text, which is from Revelation chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brother, brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water, like a river, out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. If you're visiting with us, um, welcome. We are uh, working our way through the book of Revelation. And uh, we come to Revelation 12 and we might wonder, well, why in the world do we have a chapter like this? If God is on the throne, and he is, if God has a perfect plan for this world, and he does, if Christ is the conquered and risen and reigning king, and he is, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world in which we live still? 
It's a passage like this, which I think is one of the central passages in the book of Revelation, and I think probably one of the central passages in the whole book of the Bible that helps us understand the world, and in particular, the way of the church in the world. It's a fascinating text. It reads almost like a music video. If you've ever seen a music video, there are just images that just flash at you one after the other. As you hear them, you just want to get your head around them, and before you get your head around it, another image flashes in your face. The video would be themed around a great war, in fact, a war of cosmic proportions. This video would shift from earth to heaven and then from heaven back to earth with lightning speed. Image after image bombards our visual senses. First, there is a woman, and it, we're trying to wrap our heads around who this woman is, and then an enormous great dragon appears, hideous in form and dress. And then there is a child, the child that is the uh, focus of the dragon's hatred and desire to kill. This child is born and then quickly whisked up to heaven to the throne of God. There's a war that takes place in heaven of unbelievable proportions. The dragon is thrown down to earth, falling from the sky with a host of those that followed him behind him. He is the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the one who is deceiving the whole world, out of his mouth spews a flood. The earth opens up and swallows up this flood. And then this dragon pursues the woman relentlessly again for 1260 days. It's a passage of scripture full of incredible images. But I think it's uh, explainable and understandable for us. One of the things that I want you to understand is that the book of Revelation does have a structure. It's not all that clear what the right structure is because you look at a number of commentaries and you will be given uh, five, six um, logical and um, sensible ways in which to divide the book and understand it. I do think one of the simplest ways to understand the book is just to consider it as being made up of two halves. Uh, the first half, um, there's an introduction and then there's a, a, a prologue at the end. The first half starts at about uh, verse 9 of chapter 1 and goes to the end of chapter 11. And in that first half, we have a picture of the last days, the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. It begins with a picture of the exalted Christ, this amazing description of him. And then as he walks amongst the church, it describes God on his throne above, a sealed um, scroll. It describes a lamb. And then it really describes God's way with the earth. As God pours out his judgments on the earth and as God secures his people on the earth. And then it ends at the end of chapter 11 with the trumpet sounding, the last trumpet sounding, and the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our God. And we are at the end of the last days. We come to chapter 12, and this is not chronological, I hope you understand, because chapter 12 takes us back now to the exaltation of Christ. And chapter 12 continues all the way to chapter 20, verse 15, where again we come to the end of this age, the last days, with the great right throne judgment. And so we have another span of time between the exaltation of Christ, which is just after his first coming, and the return of Christ in the great white throne judgment at the end of the last days. And so these two sections of Revelation are really to be layered on top of one another, and they give us two different perspectives of the same time period. In this second perspective, um, chapter 12 to chapter 20, the focus is really on the false trinity, 
on the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and even the great city Babylon, which is a mimic of the New Jerusalem. And so it focuses then on Satan's way in the world and on Satan's venom towards the church. And so that helps me just in my head understand where the book of Revelation is going through. I want you to also just be reminded, as our slide often says, and I think it still says it now. No, it doesn't right now. But it's the Revelation is heaven's perspective on earth. It's so important that we take time to go through the book of Revelation, to read it, to understand the blessing that comes to us, and to understand that what it gives us is heaven's perspective on the world. If we didn't have the book of Revelation, we would really be at um, a disadvantage to understanding the world in which we live. In fact, there are many people that you know that purely look at the world through naturalistic eyes. All the world that they see is materialistic. It's, it's a world that is known through the eyes, through the smell, through the mouth, through the touch, um, through the hearing. It's, it's a sensual world. It's a, it's a material world. But we understand that this world is not just a material world. We understand that this is also a spiritual world and that the material world and the spiritual world interact with one another. And in fact, events that take place in the material world have great impact on the spiritual world. And events in the spiritual world have great impact on the material world. And the book of Revelation helps us understand that interaction. And chapter 12 in particular helps us understand the spiritual reality or the spiritual nature of the world in which we live. It's a book that helps us understand Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know there are a lot of people who don't even believe in the existence of a devil any longer. But Revelation chapter 12 is very clear that there is a dragon, a devil, a serpent, a deceiver of the world. And so Paul says we need to put on the armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then this line, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces in heavenly places. This world is a spiritual world. And we battle and we wrestle and we live in both a material and a spiritual reality. And so we come to this particular text. It's really broken up into three um, sections, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 12, and verses, 7 to, or verses 13 to 17. The first section is about a birth. And the story unfolds, or as John's vision, John's vision unfolds, because so much of what John writes, he says, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And so chapter 12 begins with two signs that he sees. A great sign and another sign in the heavens. And a sign, I hope you understand, points to a greater reality. It points to something larger than itself, something bigger than itself. And so these signs point not to a literal reality, but to a figurative or to a spiritual reality. It signals that there is something greater than simply a literal or a physical reality. The first sign, this great sign, appeared in heaven. A woman we ask ourselves, well, who is this woman? What is this woman? Well, in a nutshell, this woman is the people of God. This woman is the church. 
This woman is Old Testament Israel, the church, and New Testament church. It is all of the church in one. It also includes individuals, whether it be Eve or Mary or individuals along the way. But the woman is the church, the people of God. Many Old Testament texts affirm that she is the Old Testament church. In chapter 37 of Genesis, Joseph has a dream. And it's a dream that actually inflames his father and his brothers. And he says there, he dreamed a dream and he told it to his brothers and he said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. Here is a woman who is clothed in the sun, who has the moon under her feet, who has a crown with 11 stars in it. And we presume that Joseph is the, the 12th star. It's the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the 12 apostles of Jesus. It's the church that is pictured in this image of this woman. This woman is the people of Israel as they wait expectantly for the Messiah to come from them. That was the hope of the Jewish people. They longed and they waited for Messiah to be born. They experienced birth pains as that day came closer and closer. They waited expectantly like a pregnant woman waits for the birth of her child to come. Paul states very clearly in Romans chapter uh, chapter 9 there, he says that the, the forefathers are theirs, which are referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the forefathers are theirs, and from them, from the people of Israel, from the forefathers, by physical descent came Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. And so this woman is Israel. This woman is also Mary. She is among those who, Luke tells us, waited expectantly for Messiah to come. Clearly, the child in verse 5 is Jesus Christ. But the woman is also the church, the New Testament church. For we understand that in verse 17, the dragon goes out to make war against the rest of her offspring, her seed, which takes us back now all the way to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where there we realize that there was enmity between the seed or the offspring of the woman and the seed and the offspring of the serpent. And so we understand from Revelation chapter 12 that the woman is a description of the church. All of Israel, or saved Israel, redeemed Israel, and all of the New Testament church. So the woman is the church, the people of God. And he says, I saw another sign. Another sign appears in heaven. Eugene Peterson writes of this sign, suddenly a dragon appears, ugly as the woman is lovely. The reptile is a crimson gash violating the sky. Its seven heads poised to devour the infant coming from the womb. The birth-giving woman and the death-dealing dragon are the light-year limits of the best and the worst we can ever imagine. The moment the child appears, the, the dragon lunges. We shut our eyes, too terrified to witness this outrage. The dragon is an embodiment of evil, variously described in different ways in the Old Testament. This dragon has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. The dragon bears remarkable likeness to the fourth beast that we find in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 7. It's also remarkably like the beast that we will look at next week that's described in Revelation chapter 13. The beast that comes out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Seven is the symbol of perfection. So we have perfect and complete authority, perfect evil 
represented in the dragon. Ten is the number of wholeness, complete authority, sovereign reign or complete reign over the earth. Horns, a symbol of strength and power and might. Crowns, a symbol of authority. Seven, perfect authority. And this dragon swept down with his tail a third of the stars in heaven. The stars, I think, refer to angels. We've gone through that a number of times. But these were holy angels who lined up in the rebellion behind Satan. And we'll read a little bit more or say a little bit more about that in a few moments. It's no joking matter, this dragon. He's not something to be trifled with, as we will see. Who is this dragon? John tells us. He describes it a little bit later, and we'll spend a little bit of time. But in verse 9, just jumping ahead there quickly, it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. The devil, Diabolos, the accuser, Satan, Ha-Satan of the Old Testament, the one who wreaks havoc upon the people of Israel, the one who challenges Job, the one who challenges Zechariah, the one who incites David to number the people of Israel, and the deceiver of the whole world. Powerful, effective, destructive, deceptive, world-dominating. And I saw a dragon in the heavens. This dragon, as John continues to see this vision unfold, is standing over the woman who is about to give birth over the church, over the people of Israel, out of whom Messiah would come and be born. We see that Satan's wrath was poured out against the Old Testament church again and again with hopes of destroying the Messiah before it was even born or before he was even born. We see this in the land of Egypt as Pharaoh decreed that all the males of of the Hebrew women should be drowned. We see it in Satan inciting David to number the people of Israel so God's wrath would be poured out on the people of Israel. We see it on Satan's attempt to destroy the royal line of David. We see it in most obvious form in Matthew chapter 2 verse 16 where after Herod learned that he had been deceived by the three or by the magi who didn't come back to him decreed that all the male children in Nazareth and the surrounding area be killed. The dragon was waiting to devour the child that would come forth from the woman. This child we understand to be Jesus Christ. Notice the child is not called a sign. The woman is a sign. The dragon is a sign. But we are simply introduced to the child, which is Jesus Christ. And we're meant to understand that this child is the one described in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, the one who would rule this earth with a rod of iron, the one who would shepherd this world with the rod of iron. And with incredible economy of words, John moves from the birth of Jesus to the exaltation of Jesus, which is so important for us to understand in this text. In verse 5, we, we, we read there quickly that her child was caught up to God in his throne. We, we move from the birth of Jesus, her child, to the exaltation of Jesus because what John is wrapping up is the whole life of Jesus in those two realities of the person and work of Jesus. And he wants to get us to the exaltation of Jesus because the exaltation of Jesus is the most significant event in salvific history. Because with the exaltation of Jesus, the firm amen of God was declared on his work, 
on his accomplishment of his saving work for people, of his defeat of death, of his payment of the penalty of sin, of his dealing with the curse. We understand that when Jesus died and was raised, that at that moment that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so the exaltation of Jesus is a critical part of the Christian story and of world history. And again, with economy of words, then John says, and after this, the woman then fled into the wilderness. This is the covenant community of God's people after Christ went to heaven. We understand in Acts that they were scattered all over the world. They were dispersed all over the world under persecution as the dragon then went after the woman for 1260 days. You say, well, what's that number? Well, if you're here a few weeks ago from chapter 11, we went through the numbers. There's 42 months, there's 1260 days, there's three and a half years. Those numbers are used in different ways in chapter 11, 12, and 13. And they are numbers which I believe describe the last days. There are different ways of describing the same period of time. Not a chronological time, but a theological time. A time in which the church is living on this earth between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And I hope you're following with me now because I think here's one of the first sort of applications to us as God's people. The child is up in heaven. The woman is out fleeing to the desert into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place of trial. It's a place of provision. It's a place where God guides and cares for and protects his people. You go through the Old Testament, you go back to the, the 40 years that the children of Israel spent in the wilderness. There God provided for them. He led them by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire. He made sure their feet didn't wear out. He made sure their clothes were good. He fed them quail from heaven. He gave them manna every day. He led them to water. He protected them from enemies. He preserved them until they came to the land of, Can or of, of, of Canaan. The promised land. Notice what it says. It's not by accident. A place God prepared for them. Their fleeing did not catch God off guard. Their fleeing was not something out of God's will for them. The woman went to a place prepared for God and provided for by God where it says he nourished them for this time of 1260 days. So there's a birth. There's a preservation of the church. Satan tried once and he failed. He tried to devour the child and failed. It reminds me of that verse um, from Peter, which many of you are familiar with. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Satan's tactics have not changed. So from a birth, then, we move to an expulsion. In chapter 12, verse 7 now, we, we, we have these words then or now. And we say, well, when is then? What is now? Well, when the child was caught up to heaven, when Christ is exalted and takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, something happens in heaven. And it's a, it's a remarkable event that takes place after the, the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Christ. War arose in heaven. It's almost unspeakable. It's almost difficult for us to wrap our heads around. War in heaven, we say? How can it be? What kind of war? What kind of battle? How were they facing off against one another? What kind of weapons were they using? As I understand it, until the exaltation of Christ, Satan had access to heaven. We see this uh, in a number of ways described in Scripture. 
One of the most clear ways is in the book of Job. As Job is wandering around the world and roaming the earth, he comes into the presence of God in heaven. And God says to him, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan accuses God and accuses Job. And it's an incredible story of, of how Satan is given a certain amount of authority over Job. But he has access to the presence of God. We find it as well as evil spirits. Um, if you were here a number of weeks ago, we were in the book of Elijah, and I think it's chapter 19, where um, uh, um, uh, uh, Asa and Jehoshaphat were getting ready to go to war. And there's a council that takes place in heaven. And God says, who will go and stop this? And a lying spirit comes before the throne of God and said, this is what I will do. There's a sense in which the, even the rebellious angels still had access to the presence of God. But once Christ was exalted, there was no place for them in heaven. And there was a war that broke out in heaven. Michael, the protector of God's people, described variously in the Old Testament as the one who fights on their behalf. It says, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But these incredible, wonderful words. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place in heaven for him. Do you understand that? There is no longer any place in heaven for Satan. He has no longer access to God. He no longer stands before God and accuses the brethren. He no longer stands before God and brings a complaint against the people of God. It's a verse or it's an event that I think Jesus referred to when he saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And now, as I said, the cover is pulled back because revelation is an opening up. It's a peeling back of the curtain and we see the full nature of of this dragon. He's got enormous power. He's called the ancient serpent, as I already indicated. That is a reference to the serpent in the garden. He's called the devil. That's the Greek translation of this individual, the diabolos, slanderer, one who misrepresents, one who spews lies. He's called Satan, ha Satan, the, the adversary of the people of God. He's described as the deceiver of the whole world. And with his defeat and being cast out of heaven, a voice resounds in heaven, and I believe heaven breaks out in a hymn of praise. In verse 10, we read, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He was thrown down because Christ conquered death. He was thrown down because Christ defeated the devil. He was thrown down because the penalty of sin was paid. He was thrown down because Christ paid or dealt with the curse of the law. He was thrown down because Christ disarmed the authorities and the powers in heavenly places. Notice the word thrown down. I've circled it in my Bible, in a number of my Bibles. Five times at least in this text, we are told that Satan is thrown down, thrown down, thrown down thrown down, thrown down. Why the repeated emphasis? I think John and God wants us to know that Satan is a defeated foe. He has no authority over us. He has no power over us. He is a defeated foe. He's been thrown down from heaven. Memorize those two words. Easy words to remember. Just remember and remind yourselves when things get tough and when you think that Satan is winning and you think he has power, just say, no, you have been thrown down, bounced from the halls of heaven. 
Then notice, he who accuses us before God has been thrown down. See, I already described before the exaltation of Christ, Satan had access to the throne of God. And he was able to accuse the people of God because after all, the people of God sinned and the righteousness of God had not yet been demonstrated. The sacrifice that dealt with their sins had not yet been offered. And so Satan had a legitimate means of being in heaven to accuse the people of God. But with the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, he has no place any longer. And with that, Satan was disbarred. Satan no longer had access to the courtroom of God. He is in contempt of court, in other words. He cannot speak. He has nothing to say of any value in God's court. The case against the people of God, you and I, God's children, is a case that is shut and closed, never to be reopened again. But you see, what Satan did in heaven, he still does now on earth. You understand, loved ones, don't you, that Satan is a liar. You understand that his whole goal in life is to deceive and to accuse and to spew false accusations. And he still plies his trade in your conscience and my conscience. I think every single one of you know what I'm talking about. You're not worthy to be a child of God. You're a hopeless sinner. There you go again. Look, what's God ever going to do with you? He's full of lies. He lies to you about God. He wants to tell you you're not worthy of God's trust. That God is not treating you fairly. That God is not good. That God does not love you. If God really cared about you, if God really loved you, then he would not have allowed this to happen to you. He lies to you about God. He lies to you about yourself. Look at you. You call yourself a Christian? You're an embarrassment to God. You're a blight to the people of God. And he tries to undermine your identity in Christ. He tries to undermine the fact that you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you have been bought by the work of Jesus Christ, that you are forever and secured as a sealed one, as a measured one of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are forgiven, you are washed, you are cleansed. Your sins, past, present, and future are dealt with, never more to be heard by God. He takes your sins and he casts them behind his back. He takes your sins and he removes moves them as far as the east is from the west. He blots them out never ever again to hear of them, to recall them, or to see them. Loved ones, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You need to tell yourself that Satan has no place to stand in accusation against you. You are cleansed, you are washed, you are bought, you are secure by God. Romans says, that if you've been justified by Christ, you are at peace with God. Romans says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. Paul says, who is there that shall bring a charge against the elect? No one, because Christ has dealt with our sins. Notice it says they overcame him, the saints, the church, the, the people of God, the woman overcame Satan. How did they overcome him? How did, what did they do? Well, they took up the shield of faith. They took up the shield of faith, which is part of the armor that Paul tells us to take on. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, they said no to the lies of Satan. They said no to the accusations of Satan. They said no to the temptations of Satan. With the shield of faith, we resist or we hold back or we block the fiery darts that Satan is already, always 
hurling at us. Flaming darts, subtle insinuations against God's character, subtle insinuations against you and God's love of you and your love of God. So I say, take up the shield of faith. With it, block those fiery darts that Satan sends your way. Guard yourself from the lies that try and make an incursion into your mind. As Charles Spurgeon once said, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Take up the shield of faith and resist those fiery darts. How did they do it? Well, they said, I've been washed in the blood. Satan, listen, I've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Why the blood? Because Jesus died in our place. Because Jesus took our place. Jesus became our substitute. Shed his blood for our own sins. We have been set free from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has power over me. I am free. You are free. The blood of Christ applied to you removes any legal basis or any grounds which Satan may come against you and accuse you. And when he comes to accuse you, when he sneaks into your head, when he sneaks into your heart and he starts spewing those lies and those, those accusations, say, Satan, I have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Leave me alone. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. This is what I've been talking about again and again. The word of their testimony, I believe, is that they preached the gospel to themselves. They clung to the promises of God. They declared back to the evil one what God had done to them and what God declares to them. And when the Satan comes along and he says again, Jesus died for me, you say, or Jesus, Jesus doesn't care for you, or you've, you've, you've fallen away from him. You say, no, Jesus died for me. He delivered me. I've trusted him. I've been raised with him. Recite the promises of God. Recite the truths of God. Recite the character of God. Tell him you are secure in Christ. Walk in the truth. Live in the truth. Speak the truth. Thirdly, we overcome him by not caring a whit about our bodies. This is a hard thing because so much of us put so, st so much stake in our material things. We need to be able to say to Satan, you know what, Satan, I don't give a rip what you do. You can take away my business. You can take away my bank account. You can take away my nice house. You can take away my boat. You can take away my car. You can take away my health. Go ahead and kill me because death is not the end. Death is my gain. Don't listen to his threats. Don't give in to his threats. Do not fear him who can harm the body. Fear him who can harm body and soul. Thirdly, there's a battle. There was a birth. There was an expulsion from heaven. And then there's a battle. There's an ongoing battle now that we face as the people of God. Verse 13 picks up where verse 6 left off. The dragon is now confined to earth, soon to be confined even further to the lake of fire. But it says he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Again, remember, the woman is the church, the people of God. Mary's long dead. Israel and the church are the new Israel. In verse 14, it's another figurative way of describing God's protection of his people, protecting them and nourishing them. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she'll, she shall be nourished for a time, times and a half a time. God will look after us, loved ones. We are sealed. We are numbered. We are measured. We are safe. God will nourish us in these last days. The serpent's pursuit of the woman is, is described in this incredible imagery. 
He poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away. I kept thinking, because not too many months ago, I, I watched a, a documentary on the tsunami that hit Thailand a number of years ago. I couldn't believe the force of the water as it just mowed down everything in its sight or in its path. And it's kind of a picture we get here of the force of Satan's hatred towards the church, towards you and I in the day in which we now live. It's like this river is spewed out of his mouth trying to destroy us. Well, what is it? I don't believe this is a literal river. Any more than when we claim Isaiah 42 uh, or 43 verse 2, and many of us do, and we've prayed it, and when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. We understand that metaphorically, don't we? We understand that when we walk through the real deep waters of life, the difficulties of relationships, the challenges of schools, when we face physical challenges and health challenges, we understand it. it's like a river that is poured out on us. We don't face a physical river very often. We don't face a physical fire. And so here, I believe that what it is speaking of is the deceit and the deception and the lies that spew out of Satan's mouth in an attempt to destroy the church and to devastate the people of God. You know that the devil is full of lies and accusations, do we not? He's a liar by nature. And how often has he filled this world and even the church of God with his deceit and false teaching? How many people have been swallowed up by error that has been introduced into the church? How many people have faltered for a lack of self-sound doctrine? How many people or times have we had to contend earnestly for the faith? faith? Think about the flood of false religions that have poured into this world over the last number of thousands of years, over the last millennia, as Satan has continued to try and deceive the people of God, trying to lie to them, trying to speak mysteries about God. But it says the earth came to the help of the woman, and she swallowed up the river. Thank God for the provision of men and women who speak the truth, who stand for the truth, who guard sound doctrine, who defend against false teaching and lies. Thank the Lord for his provision of earth or flood-swallowing people Let's swallow up the deceit of Satan and return it with truth. And then notice in verse 17, does it not explain your life and my life sometimes? Then the dragon became furious with the woman. That's us. That's you and me. That's the people of God. His hatred, those songs that we sung, I'm sure Martin Luther was writing out of uh, 12, uh, of Revelation 12, and that last song had reference to this as well. This is the church. Satan hates us. He's come down full of wrath because he knows his time is short. And so it says the dragon became furious with the woman and make, went off to make war on the west of her offspring. Does this not describe your life from time to time? Does this not describe what you feel and what you experience? That you're at war? That something is against you? That someone is trying to tear you down, beat you down? Who is he at war with? I, I love this description of the people of God. If you want to describe a Christian, here it is. Against those who observe the commandments of God and those who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what a follower of the Lamb is. One who obeys the commands of God. I will not waffle. I will not cave. I will not give in. I will not compromise. 
at work or at school or in my home. I will stand on the word of God because it is true and right and pure. And I will not waffle on my testimony about Jesus Christ. He is the man who came down to earth in the incarnation, who walked and lived among me, who knows what it is to be flesh and blood, who is like me in every way except without sin, and he is God. Satan's anger is poured out on those who keep the commands of God and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you choose that path, you will find yourself in hostile territory. You will find yourself opposed. You will find yourself accused. You will find yourself beat down. You will find yourself exhausted. But fear not. God has a place prepared for us. God will nourish us. God has sealed us. God has measured us. We may suffer and even lose our lives physically, but we are safe and secure forever as God's children. The God of peace, Paul says, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all.